The other thing that we want to do is we want to make sure that the standards of the implementation of a project like this is meets the standards that one would meet anywhere else in the world. You need a lot of paper. <laughs> you mean physical paper, or is that? Yeah. A, is that a... You need a lot of physical paper, and you also need a lot of paperwork. There's a great rule in the conduct of clinical trials, which is if it's not written, it doesn't exist. It's what's the point from 5:38. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, a conversation with an epidemiologist for Doctors Without Borders, who will tell us what it's like to be on the front lines of the fight against outbreaks and diseases, and how they use data to make poorer countries healthier. It's a really good reminder of how difficult it can be when trying to implement advanced tools in some of the world's most vulnerable regions. That conversation is in a minute, but first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. So can I tell you a number? Yes. So the number is 800,000, which is the number of people who came out on Facebook last year. That's amazing. Whatever works to help someone free up I mean, that's one of the ways in which I think Facebook can be extraordinarily beneficial. It might be safer to take that first step. You get a little reaction that's not right in your face. You have some distance from it. You can gain some strength and confidence and, you know, proceed from there. So for a little more context on this 800,000 number, uh, Sarah Patterson, intern for What's the Point? And our other podcast, Hot Takedown, is here. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jody. Uh so let's start there with, with what that woman, Lauren Lockwood, said, which I know necessarily isn't going to have a statsy answer, but this notion that coming out on Facebook being this brave move that you would maybe do first before coming out to your local community of friends or family. Do we have any indication about whether coming out on Facebook is like a leading indicator or not? No, not really, because coming out is such a personal experience. So you'd really have to go to each individual person and ask, you know, was coming out on Facebook the first step? Was it the last one? You know, do you come out to your friends and family in person before you do it online in the sort of broad public profile way? So this data set where we got this number, this 800,000 number for from uh, what numbers are actually in there that tell a story of the number of people who are coming out on Facebook? Yeah, so Facebook released this report um, on National Coming Out Day this year, which was October 11th. And over the last year between National Coming Out Day 2014 and 2015, they found that um, 800,000 people had changed their profile in that year. Um, but also that every day more and more people are coming out on a, a steady rate. So compared to the amount of people who came out on National Coming Out Day 2014, the rate has been increasing. We're getting close to about three times the amount of people. So three times as many people come out now on a quote-unquote average day than came out on National Coming Out Day last year. Yeah, and it peaked on June 26th, which was the date that the Supreme Court issued their ruling um, legalizing same-sex marriage. And on that day, um, it increased 250%. (laughs) On an average day, the amount of people who change their profile, they're interested in profile, is about one in 10 people will change it to a same-sex attraction. On that day, over one in five people changed it to a same-sex attraction. Wow. And if you look at this this link, which we'll link to on our site, and you see the graph of the rate of people coming out, yes, there's that huge spike on that day, no surprise, but also just this really incredible steady increase 
day after day after day, more people feeling like they can come out in this way. Are there any other tidbits from from this study or this data set? Yeah. Also, after June 26th, uh, Facebook offered this feature where you could change your profile picture to a rainbow. You put a rainbow filter over it. And over 26 million people did that. Also, in their report, they found that support for LGBT fan pages, so groups like the Human Rights Campaign or GLAAD, um, likes for those pages are also steadily increasing. And the two peaks they found were June 26, which is the Supreme Court decision, but also um, April 24th, which was the date that the Caitlyn Jenner interview aired. Oh, interesting. So you have these sort of hooks, so to speak, where you see this acceleration, but then again, this really steady rate. So again, we'll put that chart on the site and link to this study. But Sarah Patterson, thanks so much. Thank you. And now my conversation with Rebecca Grace, director of an epidemiology unit at Doctors Without Borders. I reached her at her office in Paris and began by asking if she has a particular country that she works with that she wants to highlight. Oh boy, do I. <laughs> Good answer because it's you're on my favorite <laughs> it's my favorite country and it's a country which sometimes when I speak about it I'm often corrected in public and what I'm corrected by is people say, "Don't you mean Nigeria?" and I say, "No, I'm speaking about Niger." Niger is another country. Yes, and it's and a fraught one when it comes to pronouncing it out loud. Yes, yes it is. And in English poses a particular problem. But it's a country which routinely falls um, either the lowest on the UNDP index in terms of development or sometimes occasionally the second lowest. And the only thing that one should take away from that, because you specialize in data, is that things are bad. There's not a big Mm -hmm. difference between the worst and the second to worst in the areas that we're talking about. But so one of the major problems that kids face in a country uh, like Niger and in Niger is diarrhea. So you and have diarrhea hot- is a problem. You die from diarrhea because it leads to dehydration, which makes you more vulnerable to other diseases. Or yeah, absolutely. There- right. So when children die from diarrhea, it's mainly a symptom of ac- of having poor access to care, right? Children in, in New York, where you are, or Paris, where I am, if they have severe diarrhea, they go to the hospital, they get an IV if they're over, if they're dehydrated, and, and children don't die from diarrhea in and of itself. So diarrhea is this mass category, which uh, has many different causes to it. And one of those causes is a virus called rotavirus. Children in New York and children in Paris don't die uh, from severe rotavirus gastroenteritis because they go to the hospital and they get treated. But the great thing about rotavirus is there's a vaccine. But these vaccines have some difficulties. The first part about these vaccines is they are bulky, so they take up a lot of space, and they need to be kept in a cold chain. And they are relatively expensive. You can imagine that any cost of a vaccine above about a dollar is something which would be extremely difficult to provide in a country like Niger. And so we decided to do the first large trial, uh, and they're called phase three trials, which is where you're trying to look at the efficacy of a vaccine, which would be trialed in a country like Niger. 
And the reason for that is it's important when we're looking at these new vaccines, we want to know not if it works in, in kids in New York or in Paris or in rich countries, but we want to see how does this vaccine perform in the populations where it's supposed to, where it's, where it's destined to be used. Let me just ask a question for context here, which is sure. I think a lot of people are familiar with your work in terms of crisis response, right? There's a there's an epidemic, and we hear about mm-hmm. your important work on the on the ground there. Mm-hmm. And so, how much of the organization Doctors Without Borders is about that sort of crisis response mode, and how much is it about something like this, which may not be necessarily crisis response, but maybe more preventative? Or do you even make that distinction because it's an outbreak and an outbreak is an outbreak and is an outbreak and it's always a crisis? There you go. So the great thing about emergencies, in which I would I would say is depends on it's an emergency for who, right? <laughs> and most of the places where we work. Um, are what are either, uh, and there's lots of different terms for these, either called protracted crises or permanent crises or chronic crises, where you have uh, slight variations in degree of emergency, but the baseline is bad. And, the, <laughs> and so the so activity cr- <laughs> uh, that you're, the, the work that you're doing is basically the same, and you're always in crisis response Abs- mode. Absolutely. And so what's what's determined and what's considered a crisis and emergency, which is a whole other type of conversation, is really is really one which depends on who who are you referring to. And often what's laden in that um, are some other questions. So you can use the media as a gauge. You can use um, under five mortality or crude mortality as a gauge. You can use all sorts of different indicators to determine what's a crisis. You can do all of that. But the reality is, is that populations which are vulnerable, which are principally where MSF works, those vulnerable populations are in a chronic state. Uh, of what most people would be would consider to be an emergency. And so when we hear about the response to the Ebola, quote unquote, crisis, oh, right, yes. a lot of the efforts on the ground there during that and a lot of the challenges, which we'll get to, I imagine, are probably the same as sure. the ones you saw in Niger trying to do this rotavirus vaccination. Sure. And Ebola in many ways is is unique. Um, if you're somebody like me, um, I, I in no way want to, to imply that it's not important to respond. And it was a massive amount of, of our activity and energy. And, and I participated to the best way that I could. But it's also very frustrating to see uh, the great attention which is paid to the Ebola crisis. Whereas um, if you contrast that with a country like Niger, I don't think you would ever see the massive amount of media attention or interest in uh, many children dying from diarrhea on a daily basis. Right. So let's talk about how this this work manifests itself on the ground. And uh, mm-hmm. let me ask a sort of willfully naive question here, which sure. is I would I would imagine, right, in a perfect world, uh, 
your work would be like neatly sequenced into very clear steps. You would, you know, identify the disease. Uh, you'd Wouldn't get your great? head around the affected population. Mm -hmm. You'd model the spread. You'd vaccinate. Then you'd do education and build up infrastructure. And you'd have like six months to focus <laughs> on each one of those steps. But I imagine it's not that way, right? You show up and all of those problems are kind of happening at the same time. So how do you begin yes. to prioritize <laughs> and begin to try and sort of fight all those fires at the same time? So so if we go back to the to the vaccine question, which is an interesting one. So so you're right. So let's say we make the choice and we say, okay, we would like a better vaccine or one that we think is more adapted. The in order to do that, there's lots of assumptions implied. The first one is people have to want that. Mm -hmm. So the first step is um, MSF as a non-governmental organization. We're not responsible ultimately for uh, making decisions like this, but we can provide information and evidence and s help to support a ministry of health. So the first step is you have to ask people. Oh. Right, no, but, yeah, go ahead. No, but I'm curious on that point. How much is, is data a part of that rhetorical argument? And how much mm -hmm. are you going in and saying, here's what our models show, here's what we think is going to be the spread of this disease, and here's the effect we can have? Mm -hmm. Well, so actually, I think more than you think. Um, and so in terms of doing that process, the way that that was done in this specific case is uh, you organize a big meeting. And you bring the Minister of Health, the head of the immunization program, ethical committees, imams, uh, people who represent the villages that might be a part of a study like this. And uh, what we did was try to have to try to provide as much data as we possibly could. And so what does that data entail? It meant describing the vaccines currently in place, describing what the possibilities were, what the pros and cons were, what this would mean, what would happen if all of this failed what would happen, which is almost always the case in scientific adventures, um, so to speak. And after that, we said, please let us know if this is something that you'd be interested in doing. Mm -hmm. So data plays a role in terms of framing and setting up the question and trying to provide uh, a basis with which to have that conversation. But ultimately, decisions like all around the world are not necessarily made on data. They're made on uh political questions. They're based on trust. They're based on opportunistic moments where things converge. And so I wouldn't want to overstate that because there's lots of reasons that people do that. You must be able to provide primary health care to anybody that would eventually want to or be eligible to participate in, in a study like this, which is looking at a new vaccine. And that's a big deal. In a country like Niger, where you have multiple diseases, you have uh, a scenario where the population in and of itself is quite vulnerable, that entails setting up uh, a constant, stable uh, program which provides comprehensive primary and emergency care. That was a big mouthful, but I don't really know how to describe it in any other way. Right. So that involves a lot of people. <laughs> that involves uh, a lot of training. That involves a lot of administration. That involves a lot of securing financial mechanisms. That involves a lot of management. And none of that has anything to do with uh, the ultimate outcome of a study like this, which is in its overwhelming nature, almost usually always reduced to one number. <laughs> <laughs> but behind that number is lots and lots of people.
And then on top of that, because the other thing that we want to do is we want to make sure that the standards and the implementation of a project like this is meets the standards that one would meet anywhere else in the world. You need a lot of paper. <laughs> you mean physical paper? Or is that a, is that yeah, a... you need a lot of physical paper. And you also need a lot of paperwork. Um, because in the conduct of these trials, there's a great rule in the conduct of clinical trials, which is if it's not written, it doesn't exist. But, but I'm, I'm hung up on this paper thing, right? Sure. Because is there not mobile technology or some other way to gather data in a more efficient, connected way that even in a country that, as you're describing, might actually be more efficient than or cheaper than paper? Mm-hmm. That's all true if you have access to the Internet, um, <laughs> which, which in this case, there's, there's Wi-Fi. Um, we have subscriptions or we have uh, contracts with three different mobile companies because often you make a phone call, it lasts for five minutes and you switch to another carrier. And so that's not a very stable system. So the access to technology like having an underground fiber or any type of solid connection requires requires all of that. It requires network coverage. It requires stable electricity. It requires things which you don't have in a context like this. So it wouldn't necessarily, it's something that we'd like to work toward, obviously, in telemedicine and mobile devices and all those things are absolutely super, but it's got to work. The second part of that, which is also interesting, which is this contrast and an important part of, of thinking about these questions is, is, is that sustainable or are you bringing in something only for a brief period, which is then going to disappear? So you've, you've taught a whole bunch of people how to use a fancy tablet that then you're going to take away again and it's not going to be something which is then something that can be incorporated into, into the environment. This is like oh. that... Uh... And I know that this is an apocryphal story, but it's like that thing they talk about with the uh, how NASA spent billions of dollars trying to develop a space pen and the Russians just used a pencil, right? Sometimes the simplest technology, Kinda. right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes the simplest technology works better. That story, by the way, so, not true, but nevertheless, yeah. a good metaphor. But it is a good metaphor. Um, but yeah, so exactly. So, so, so you want something which is both appropriate um, and something which is going to work. Mm. And so in, in, in a country like Niger where we work, we're not quite there yet. Um, obviously, that's something that, which is extremely important to get to, but we're not quite there. So there's a lot of paper. Um, so the people on the ground who are filling out paperwork and tracking results, mm-hmm. what, what is an actual form that they're filling out look like? <laughs> Well, well, in essence, in, in the villages where this study takes place, there is uh, an individual who lives in the village, who's a part of the study staff, who follows all of the kids in the village, and he follows all the kids that are born. And when a kid is born in that village, he then goes and talks to them, or she, about whether they would like to participate in this research. And if they consent to participating, after that, the, the mother is, is trained about um, basic aspects of primary care and warning signs of general health of their newborn, is explained that um, we'd like them to come to a health post and be vaccinated not only for rotavirus vaccine, but also so that the child or the infant receives all of the other preventive care that they need. So already you have a lot of paper. (laughs) 
you have to document that mom understands what's happening and what they're participating in, understands how this data is going to be used, understands uh, what uh, their participation entails. You have the agent or the person who's in the village has a lot of paper because he's got to be able to document that mom understands all of this also and also be able to follow the health of children in the trial at every moment that they have any type of event. How much of a challenge is it to make sure all that data that's being collected on those sheets of paper in one village versus another village versus another country is standardized in a way that you can then learn bigger lessons? A lot. Um, uh, So there are, of all of the people that work on a study like this, there's some people which are just in charge of making sure that the kids are okay medically. There's another group of people which is in charge of making sure that all of the paper is filled out uh, in terms of that child. There's another group of people that's in charge of making sure that the villages and people in the community have all of their questions answered and that they understand what's going on. There's another group of people that deals only with children that are severely ill and they're in a hospital. And another group of people that deals only with um issues in terms of medical care that can be dealt with at a clinic. And so it's it's a small organization in and of itself. And so the paperwork involved in it, to give you an idea, is every single event that I just mentioned in a child's life and that we need to follow has a separate form. And those forms um, range from one to three pages long. And so in addition to all of those different jobs, everybody has to be trained on how to do it. And it's not a small venture. With regards to uh, tracking a disease or even tracking um, an effort, a vaccination effort, how much modeling are you doing in terms of trying to track an outbreak, trying to get a sense of the future path? Oh, my heart will always lie with 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 modeling, but ha, modeling. <laughs> you asked a tricky question. So, when is modeling useful? Modeling is most useful when um, the question that one is trying to address isn't necessarily clear. Modeling helps expose areas, in particular with, with, with respect to what I do, expose areas where either a decision is needed, additional research is needed, or there's not enough data to tell you what's going on. So when does that help? That helps when there's questions about what is the best, what's called an operational strategy, for example, to deliver a vaccine in an epidemic. Is it too early? Is it too late? Can we always do it? Um, What would happen if we vaccinated here? Uh, What are some estimates of the number of cases that we had potentially averted? 
um, it's useful in situations like that. It helps to define the question that we're trying to address and helps provide additional information in order for people making those decisions can be informed about it. It's not great as a predictive tool. And like anything in science and in anything with numbers, you're, you're operating always with uncertainty, so modeling is also sometimes a way to help quantify that uncertainty for people that need it. So just to put a finer point on it, there's, there aren't these scenarios where you run a model and say, aha, the next outbreak is going to happen in this neighborhood. Let's go there. Mm, That's only no. in those movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, the horrible reality of things like this is, is, is most of the time in terms of outbreaks or, or things or events that are happening, you get that information by the best way possible, which is the best way to, to ensure that you treat and, and we do the actions that we're supposed to be doing in terms of, of MSF or with respect to epidemiology in terms of what we do is, is by ensuring that you're present mm-hmm. and that you're, you're on the ground. I'm not trying to knock the value of mathematical modeling, no, is, but because I do have a, I have a strong, strong heart for it, and, and I do it myself. Right. Well, it's really uh, all it about how used... this stuff manifests itself in the actual field and gets and gets yeah. used on the ground. Do you keep any data on the doctors that, that are in the field? I mean, how do you evaluate whether someone's doing good work? I, how do you evaluate, I guess, their mental well-being, their physical well-being? Just like you do anywhere else. <laughs> so, um, and maybe that's important, something that, that, that I should add. So if we go back to the study that I was talking about in Niger, so we have, uh, out of all of those people that I mentioned that working on the trial, um, there's eight people that are not nationals from Niger. So this is everybody's job. But it's their community. <laughs> so... Yes, and it's their community. So in terms of all of those things that you would do anywhere else in the world, it's also true here. Um, People have a job profile. They get evaluated. There's a health plan. Uh, We have a psychological plan if they need it. Uh, There's big discussions like you'd have anywhere in the world about whether dental coverage is included in your health plan. Right, but sending someone to... Uh, A country that is having an outbreak or even sending someone to an ongoing country uh, like the the program in Niger, that's different from asking someone to be a doctor in the United States. I mean we saw this with the Ebola outbreak about the lack of doctors who were willing to go to the front lines. Right. But I want to harp on this point a little bit because it's one of my pet pet peeves. So if you take an organization like like MSF – I'm going to get the number wrong, but I'll give you an estimate. So let's say uh, there's 30,000 people in the field. A very, very small proportion of those people are who you're talking about. So those people are very important, but they are not the bulk of what represents MSF or of the people even that I in my tiny little piece of participating in, in my little job in this, this big world um, are not representative of, of the bulk of our staff. And so what you're talking about is, is how do we take care psychologically of people which are going to work in a country which is not their own? So let me just go back to my previous point. So if we go back to Niger, of those nine people that are not from Niger working, they're from surrounding countries. And that doesn't mean that they don't have medical problems and that they don't need evaluations and they might not need mental health care. But it does mean that the way that we conceptualize who's working in the field and who's doing this thing is slightly different. So 
I don't want to be too flip about it, but if you answer your question directly in terms of how do we deal with, with, with expatriate staff or international staff coming into a country like Ebola, there are processes and programs in place which help evaluate, first and foremost, those people's suitability for going to the field in terms of following them up, both medically and if they have any um, psychological issues afterwards. But that's a relatively minor part of, of what we've been talking about. Those, they, they represent a very uh, relatively small component and even big things, which are quite historic in, in the history of, of medicine in, in the world, like the Ebola epidemic, are, are relatively unique. That's not everybody's day-to-day existence in an organization like this. Um, you mentioned that at the end of this whole process in a country like Niger, there's a number. <laughs> Yeah, what's yes. the number? I can't tell you the number. But what is what is the number supposed to be? <laughs> oh, the, you mean, oh, you mean what is it conceptually? Not what is the actual. Well, you number. can tell me the number if you yeah. want. <laughs> yeah, the, I would love to tell you the number. I'll come back okay. and you can ask me about what the number is when I can tell you. So, so the number is uh, what's called the efficacy of a vaccine. So, is this vaccine uh, efficacious in protecting an individual? Uh, who has received the vaccine from having the disease that it's supposed to prevent. So in this case, and so that's like when you read in the paper and these numbers are great. You could do an entire show just on, (laughs) just on that. Um, And they're derived by comparing the incidence of disease uh, or the incidence of what you're trying to measure or to prevent in a group that received the vaccine compared to a group that did not. Okay. So you don't, you don't have to tell me the number, but tell me is, is a a high, is a a high number good? High is good. It's not like golf where low is good no high is good the higher it is the better off you are (laughs) yes okay well rebecca grace from doctors without borders uh i hope your number is very high thank you jody it was a pleasure it was a pleasure On our website, links to more information about Rebecca's work with Doctors Without Borders in Niger and elsewhere around the world, 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Sarah Patterson, as you heard, is our intern. Special thanks this week to Rebecca Rossman in Paris. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcast at 538.com. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook where you can track me down. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Find a link to download his theme song for our show on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. 
Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. So if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store. Search for Hot Takedown to find us. We'll talk to you then. Do it.